The text we're looking at today is uh, the majority of Acts chapter 4. Of course, it's a long text, and so I encourage you to follow along. If you have not grabbed a Bible already, there are still a couple back at the, at the back of the room. You can grab those. Um, we'll read through the text, and then we'll have um, some comments on it. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, so was Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone the builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note of these men that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin, and they conferred together. What are we going to do with these men? they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows that they have performed a notable sign. And we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes? To listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punch them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why did the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. This is God's word. So we're continuing this study of the book of Acts post-Easter. The church, after Jesus ascends into heaven, continues the work of Jesus, joins Jesus on his mission, and Jesus gives that church power to bring more people in. 
We also know as we studied through this series that God gives us the comfort that as we join him on his mission, that he is going to be with their, uh, there with us and that he is going to give us the comfort that he will accomplish all things according to his will. Last week we saw the church start to move out into its community as Peter and John healed a lame man who was sta- uh, sitting by the temple gate called Beautiful. And then they get this chance to preach to a large crowd of people who are there. Um, it's right there that we pick up the text. That's where we started reading. Um, and I think as we walk through the text, we're going to see that this whole text really has one big theme, which I want to unpack at the end of the text. But before we get there, we're just going to walk through and note a number of things in the text. If you want to take notes along with us, I did provide note sheets for you. If you're watching online, you can get those note sheets in the description of the video. So the text starts with Peter and John having finished their sermon to the people who were there, and the chief priests, priests, the temple guard, and the Sadducees are greatly disturbed by this whole thing because they are preaching that there is a resurrection of the dead that can be had in Jesus. Now, I know I harp on this, but uh, the resurrection of the dead is the central message of Christianity. It is not the love of God, it is not the forgiveness of sins, it is the resurrection of the dead. Now those things are important, those things come as a result of the resurrection of the dead, but I think we just need to program ourselves to think about Christianity that way, because that's how the apostles think of it. There are seven sermons in the book of Acts, every single one of them is about the resurrection. Right, we have to have that as our operating principle. If someone asks you, why am I a Christian? The answer is, because Jesus rose from the dead. That's the right answer. So anyways, they're preaching about the resurrection of the dead, and they don't like this, so they seize Peter and John, and they put them in prison. This happens to be the first persecution that the early Christian church faces, and I think it's difficult for us to um, conceptualize or talk about persecution in our culture because, well, frankly, we don't experience a whole lot of it, at least comparatively to the rest of the world. I mean, none of you are afraid that people are going to come in here and start killing us or arresting us for worshiping together today. Uh, But I think we do need to talk about it because, well, I think there's three reasons. Uh, The first of those is that we have to think about persecution in terms of our brothers and sisters in faith. Um, So this this map is uh, the World Watch List for 2022 from Open Doors, which is uh, an advocacy program for Christians who are persecuted across the world. Their map is showing the top 50 nations where, it is, uh, where Christians are particularly persecuted. The darker the, the shade of the nation, the more dangerous the persecution is for Christians. In fact, ha- over half of all nations on earth have some laws on the books that either completely or significantly restrict the preaching of the gospel. And even in those countries beyond what's on the books, there are rogue groups, there are terrorist organizations who are persecuting Christians regularly. Now, we don't experience that, right? We haven't had any of us arrested or killed or have our house terrorized in some way because we're Christians. So we don't see it, but it's happening. And it's happening regularly to people across these areas of the world. And there are brothers and sisters. They share the same faith as us. They are the body of Christ along with us. And so this should break our heart. As we read these sections of persecution, we shouldn't think that's far off. We should think that's, that's as much a part of me as if I hurt my hand, right? Um, the second reason we should care about this is to make us thankful, right? As, as Christians who do live in a place where we are not openly persecuted, I think it's easy for us to just take that as a given. That's how it's always going to be. But it frankly isn't. Uh, world history has attested to time and time again that even in nations that allow Christianity to exist for a while, they eventually turn on Christianity, And I don't know when that's going to happen, but it will happen in the West. And so we ought to be thankful for our freedom right now and 
We ought to fight for it as long as we can have it. And we ought to have serious and thoughtful conversations about what it means to live in this culture and what are the threats to being able to live and have our faith the way that we do right now. Uh, the last of those, though, I want to I drill down on, and that's the to energize us idea, why we need to talk about persecution. Uh, as you look at this map again, the world watch list for 2022, you'll notice that uh, the, the areas that are most dangerous for Christians are all kind of in the same geographic sec- uh, segment, right? It's all basically North Africa, the Middle East, and South Asia. And there's something to know about those areas. Those are the places where Christianity is growing the fastest. Um, in, in North Africa, uh, North Africa is becoming more Christian by 3% every year. South Asia, uh, about 2% every year. And the Middle East, a little bit over 1% every year, which doesn't sound like all that much, but realize that's exponential every year. And compared to the significant decline of Christianity on this continent, it's really good news for Christianity. So why might the church grow as much as it does in those areas? Uh, To take you back in history, this has been true for all of Christian history. Uh, During the first 300 years of the early Christian church, there were 10 systematic persecutions of the church. And I'll spare you the gory details because they are really gory, um, but it was brutal for the church. And yet you know that during the first 300 years of the church, the church grew immensely. I mean, it took over the Roman Empire. So much so that uh, the church father Tertullian uh, coined this, this phrase that the, 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 seed, uh, excuse me, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. That's what he said. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The blood of those who are slain for the faith is like seed that drops to the ground and grows up more Christians. So this has always been true for Christianity. Where Christianity is most persecuted, there it grows the strongest. Now why might that be? Because when you are heavily persecuted for your faith as a Christian, those who are not really Christians, they get out. Right? They stop saying that they're Christians. They stop practicing their faith. And so those who are left are those who really do think that Jesus rose from the dead and they're going to live in line with it. And you can imagine that those people then are exuding grace and generosity and patience and compassion because they are so in love with Jesus and what he has done for them. And so think about it. If you're in one of those countries, the average Christian you're going to meet is highly dedicated to giving you as much grace as Jesus has given them. Being as generous with you as Jesus has been with them. Being as dedicated to you as Jesus is to them. That's the average Christian you meet. And you can imagine that's very attractive. And that's why Christianity grows so much in those nations. Compare that to the West, where Christianity is not illegal. Many people can call themselves Christians but not be particularly dedicated to it. And therefore, you get the result that the average Christian you're going to run into in the West is at best apathetic, at worst hypocritical. Because they can just call themselves a Christian but not be dedicated to grace and to generosity and to compassion. Now, here's what I want to press on us. I really don't want to wait for a persecution for that to happen here. I want us to see God's word as as true as we say it is and to live out of that faith to love with generosity that the world does not show, to show compassion that the world does not have, to give grace like the world cannot give. That people would walk in here and they would say, there's something different about these people. They're not like everyone else. This isn't like any other church I've been to. That happens when we take God's word seriously. We dedicate ourselves to it. 
Okay, so I don't want to spend the whole time on persecution, but I think we just need, need to talk about it because it does kind of thematically run through this text as well. Anyways, the, Peter and John, they get into uh, prison and they're let out the next day in order to go before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was kind of the Jewish supreme uh, court. And uh, when they get in front of this group of people, they are asked this question, by what power or what name did you do this? Talking about healing the man. Uh, this accusation from the Sanhedrin is actually answered by Peter with an accusation of his own, right? If you sum up what he says back to them, he essentially says, you guys think we're the problem? You're the problem. You killed Jesus, right? You killed Jesus and God raised him from the dead. Now, I just want us to think about that for a moment because it's amazing boldness from Peter, isn't it? I think when we are confronted by, by criticisms of our faith, we tend to become apologetic. Like we're like sorry that we believe these things. Right, well, you know, that's just what my church teaches. Well, you know, I realize it's old-fashioned. We get apologetic about what God teaches, but Peter does not hear. He says, you think I'm wrong? You're wrong. Now, I'm not advocating that we would have every conversation with somebody who criticizes the faith exactly like this. This was a specific scenario where Peter was able to speak this way. But what I'm asking us is, are we willing to ever speak this way? Do we believe what we say we believe enough to speak like this? I would guess that if we are not able to speak like this, it's because maybe we don't actually functionally believe what we say we believe. Like if we believe that Jesus is risen from the dead, as Yaroslav Pelikan says, then nothing else matters. You can't touch me. I'm immortal. I am inside the immortal son of God and I will live and live and live even though I die. There is nothing you can do to me. But again, I don't know if we have the resurrection of Jesus at the center of our faith. Maybe for some of us, Christianity is, well, what I've always done. It kind of fits into my lifestyle. Sort of fits with my values. Or it's what my parents expect of me. Or maybe I just don't have enough time to think of what I actually believe, so I might as well stick with going to church. Is the resurrection the centerpiece? If so, we would have this boldness to go back at at our critics and say, no, actually, you need to repent because Jesus is risen. And in that, we see the central message of the Christian faith once again. But the message is always resurrection and repentance. Jesus has risen. You need to repent. But along with that comes the gospel. Right? Think about this. Peter goes to these people who very obviously were behind the murder of the Son of God, and he calls them to repentance, but then he offers them grace. He says, salvation is found in no one else. In other words, you can repent and be saved, even you, Sanhedrin, who orchestrated the murder of the Son of God, which is gospel for us, to know that no matter what we have done, there is salvation found in Jesus Christ. At this point, this uh, leaves them with something of a conundrum because uh, they realize that, well, the crowd believes what they say, and there's obviously a man who used to be lame, and he now is walking. And so they, they ask the guys to walk out of the Sanhedrin for a little while. They talk to each other, and they come to this conclusion that they're going to tell them not to teach or preach in the name of Jesus at all. Uh, what I think is really interesting about this is really twofold. So first of all, um, I, I, just, I laugh at the, the childish behavior of the Sanhedrin here. Do you see this? This is essentially the child putting his fingers in his ears and saying, la, 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 I'm not listening. Right? They don't want to engage the argument at all. They don't want to engage the evidence, even though the evidence is plainly right in front of them. 
Um, This leads me to a conclusion that I've heard many pastors say, and so I think there's some merit to it. Uh, Unbelief is rarely about evidence. It's often about inconvenience. This is important for us as we think about how do we share our faith with people that we know personally. Unbelief is rarely about evidence, especially in the West where Christianity is at least part of the broader culture and people understand conceptually what it is. It's not that there's not evidence. It's that it's inconvenient evidence. It's evidence that challenges me that I might need to spend my money differently or hang out with different people or use my body differently or spend my time differently. And because it's inconvenient, because it's not the way I want to live, I would rather not actually engage the argument. I'd rather just dismiss it. I'm not listening. You may have found this not by someone saying, stop talking about that or I'm not listening anymore, although that might have happened. You will hear this often when people just continue to move on from whatever argument you make without engaging the argument. You'll say, Jesus is risen from the dead. And they'll say, yeah, but how can we trust the Bible? Well, there's uh, 24,000 manuscripts of the Bible. Well, how do we know those manuscripts aren't corrupted? They're not actually engaging the argument. They're just moving on and moving on because they don't want to engage the evidence. And it's important for us to think about what a person needs often more than more evidence is a safe landing pad. They need to know that it's actually safe to believe something inconvenient that you will be there on the other side of them jumping off the ledge into faith in Jesus to be there for them, to catch them, to support them. Unbelief is rarely about evidence. It's very often about inconvenience. I think there's a second uh, level to this, though, and that's at a macro level. Think about what the, the Sanhedrin is telling these believers to do. They're saying, don't speak publicly about your faith anymore, which is the persecution, if you want to call it that, of the church in the West. Right? We're not getting killed or arrested for our faith, but we are being told, keep your faith private. You can believe that, but don't bring it into the public square. That's exactly what the Sanhedrin was doing here. And of course, you know, Peter and John have none of it. Right? They say, you want us to listen to you? We must listen to God. Now, what happens after this is they let them go because they realize they can't punish him. John and Peter go back to the rest of the disciples And then they engage in this prayer. And the prayer really can be summed up by um, God's church realizing that they are going to be persecuted and praying for God's strength through it. Right? They're seeing now, oh, we are going to be persecuted just like Jesus was persecuted. How he was conspired against to have his life taken from him even though he was the sinless son of God. And now we who continue on his mission with him are going to be persecuted just like him. So they pray for strength. They say, enable us to speak boldly. Now, we'll break down a little bit of the prayer a little bit later in the sermon, but but that's the text. And what it all centers around is this concept of the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God is the, the concept, the doctrine that God is in control of all things. That God plans beforehand how life is going to go. He's like an author writing the story, just like I, I told the children. Um, You can see this right in the text. It's explicit, right? Uh, In prayer, the disciples call him the sovereign Lord, and then they talk about how what had happened, the decisions of Herod and Pilate, were what God had decided beforehand by his power and will to happen. You also see this in what Peter says to uh, the Sanhedrin when he says that salvation is found in no one else. He's saying there is exclusively one way to be saved. There is one sovereign over all creation, one God who controls all things. You can also see it implicitly in the text. As you just read through the narrative, you realize that all the things that are happening are too good to be a coincidence. 
right? Think about what happens in this text. 2,000 people are added to the number of the church, right? Because you have 3,000 from Pentecost, and we find out we have 5,000 by the end of this text. They get a chance to preach in front of the Sanhedrin. Like, think about this. If you were going to get an audience with the Sanhedrin to, sh- to share the gospel with them, there's like one way you do that. You get arrested by them, right? And then at the end of the text, the Holy Spirit comes powerfully on God's people. All of it, because Peter and John talk to a guy on the side of the road on their way to the temple to pray. Right? God's sovereignty is working through all these things, this amazing plan that no one could have possibly imagined to accomplish these amazing things for his church. So this sovereignty of God is throughout the scripture. You can find it in all sorts of places, but what it inevitably brings up in the mind of particularly Western people is, but what about free will? Right? Because we have this concept that, Christ, that uh, excuse me, people in general have free will. So where does free will fit in with this idea that God has all things planned like an author writing a story? Well, maybe what I'll say primarily on this is that this is a question that really only Western, post-enlightenment, individualistic people ask. It's a very culturally contextual problem for us. Um, I think it's because we have a concept that God needs to fit into our brain space, Right? Like because we're so individualistic, we've been told we're the masters of our own destiny. We believe that even the concept of God should fit under our ability to understand things. So we struggle with this, this question. We want it to be binary when it really isn't. Um, cultures outside of the West, they, they don't struggle with this question. They just say, well, if he's God, then he's divine, and therefore it stands to reason that he would be on like a different intellectual level than the rest of us. But we live in the West, so we're going to talk about this question because it's something that we definitely do struggle with. Um, The teaching that the Bible has is that humans have free will and at the same time, God is sovereign controlling all things. Both of those things are true at the same time. Now that you can realize this is a paradox, right? These are two things that seem like they can't exist at the same time, an apparent contradiction, but it's really not that case. And by the way, you believe in apparent contradictions already. You believe in light, right? Light scientifically, sometimes behaves like particles and sometimes behaves like waves. There's an apparent contradiction, but we know that light still exists and that it does what it does. Um, God is the same way. Human beings have free will. God is sovereign and controlling all things. You can see this right in the scriptures. An example would be from the book of Proverbs. It says, in their hearts, humans plan their course, but the Lord establishes their steps. So humans have agency. They have the ability to make free will decisions to plan their life. But at the same time, the Lord is sovereign over all things, controlling those steps. You can also see this play out practically. There's a number of examples of this in the scripture. Uh, Acts 27 is a really good one. But probably the, the most famous is the story of Joseph at the end of Genesis. And maybe you remember the story. Joseph's brothers sell him into slavery in Egypt. But from slavery, he ascends all the way to second in command in Egypt in order to bless people during a famine. And at the end of the narrative, uh, Joseph says this to his brothers. He says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. You made a free will decision that should have caused evil, but instead God and his sovereignty worked it all out for good. So this is the concept, and I would love to take like a whole nother hour just to to run through all the the machinations of how that works and how those things balance, but because this is a sermon, I'm just going to give you the spiritual implications of this. You need to have both human free will and God's sovereignty, and here's why. Uh, If you have sovereignty without free will, you have robots. You take away the agency of human beings, right? Human beings have no ability to be self-autonomous 
beings that God created. And when you take away free will, you end up really having a tyrannical God, right? Uh, If you play this out, especially into the conversation about salvation, you realize that if there is sovereignty with no free will, then God sovereignly chooses some people to be saved and sovereignly chooses some people to go to hell. That means you have a God who is actively choosing the damnation of people that he claims to love. So you cannot have sovereignty without free will. On the other hand, you can't have free will without sovereignty because then you have an impotent or loveless God. You have a God who gives agency to his creation, but he is either incapable of doing anything about their problems, or he is capable of doing something about their problems, but he doesn't care to. So you have an impotent or loveless God if you have free will without sovereignty. But if you have both, if you have free will and sovereignty, you have a God who is powerful enough to save and to orchestrate your life for your good while still giving you the agency that a person who loves you gives. You know this, if you're in a relationship, it's not love if you control the other person. It's love if you give them the agency to love you back. So God's free will and sovereignty need to coexist. They need to paradoxically be held in tension. And if you go to one side or the other, you're going to end up messing up the scripture and, frankly, your life. Maybe you didn't follow all this, and maybe you have a hundred more questions about the balance between free will and sovereignty. But let me give you some reasons why this is just a beautiful doctrine for us and why it's so important for us to think about, especially in the context of the church who is being persecuted, like we see in this text. We get four comforts from God's sovereignty. The first of those is that our past blesses us. If God's sovereignty is true and you have free will, then all of the decisions that you have made, good or bad, within your free will, God has orchestrated across your life to get you to this place where you can hear unequivocally, God loves you, has died for you, has risen for you, you are guaranteed heaven with him. You may have made a whole bunch of dumb decisions in your life, but God has used those for the good of blessing you to get you here. We also get the comfort that our past blesses others. If God is sovereign, then he is also orchestrating all of our dumb decisions and sins in order to bless other people. But think about this. Some of you have made mistakes in your life that have given you unique experiences that will allow you to bless others. For example, um, if you're dealing with somebody who is going through a divorce, I may be able to tell that person what the Bible says about that, but I have no experiential empathy for that. Because I'm not divorced, neither my parents nor Johanna's parents were divorced, none of our grandparents were divorced. We didn't have that in our lives. And so while I can tell you what the truth is, I can't empathize the same way as somebody who's gone through it, or maybe was a a child of parents who were divorced. You have that ability to see things differently. Maybe it's financial struggle. Maybe it's a certain type of chronic pain. Maybe it's mental illness. God has uniquely positioned you with all of your experiences, positive and negative, to bless others. We also see the comfort that God's sovereignty gives us blessing through our future. Like you can know that God has sovereignly chosen to save you. God has again orchestrated your whole life because he wants you. He has chosen you. He has baptized you. He continues to feed you his body and blood in the Lord's Supper. And so when you're wondering, am I a Christian? Does God still love me? You can know unequivocally he does. He has chosen it before the foundations of the world. Then finally, the comfort from God's sovereignty is that our future can bless others. 
I just want you to think through this text and realize like the, the little bit of faithfulness that Peter and John had that blew up into this amazing blessing for the church. You'd imagine Peter and John, they're walking to the temple on that day to pray. And you just hypothesize with me. John leans over to Peter and says, okay, what do you think it would take for us to have 2,000 people convert to the faith and we get a chance to preach in front of the Sanhedrin and the Holy Spirit powerfully comes down on all of our church? What do you think that would take? I think the only reasonable answer Peter would say is a miracle, right? Because what are you going to do to accomplish that kind of amazing output? What was God's answer? Go talk to that guy. That guy? That guy. Because Peter and John were willing to talk to one lame beggar who thousands of people were walking past. On that one day, 2,000 people were added to the church. They got the chance to preach the gospel to the Sanhedrin and the Holy Spirit came powerfully down on his church on that day. Which means that the, the mundane little decisions that you make in your free will, God is working all of those things out to bless others. Now, like we've talked about, Christian decision-making, wisdom all has to play into that, but God's comfort for us is that as we make these decisions, he's going to bless others. So that's the concept of God's sovereignty and why we can have this amazing comfort during persecution. Um, But if I can, can I just take a moment to tangent a little bit? Because I think this is related to God's sovereignty and it's right in the text and it's super pertinent for us. Um, You notice when when the Sanhedrin comes to, uh, to Peter and John and they say, don't speak publicly in the name of Jesus anymore. And Peter and John give this great answer. They say, oh, what is the right thing to do in this situation? To, to listen to God or to listen to you? You be the judges. I think it's a wonderful testament to their trust in the sovereignty of God. They're saying effectively, like whatever you think you can do to us, imprison us, kill us, try to shut us up. God can do far worse to us. And so we're going to listen to God and not to you. And if God wants it to be that you cannot even touch us, he is sovereign and he will make that happen. And so we're going to listen to him and not to you. And I guess what I want to say is I repent for not believing that. Uh, I repent to you as my congregation because I don't think I believed that the same way that the disciples believed it in this text for the last two years. I think I was afraid of a lot of people who told the church how to behave rather than listening to God tell the church how to behave. And I repent. I think we kept our church closed to worship in the Lord's Supper too long. I think we should not have listened to those who would tell us not to worship when God has told us to worship to not have the Lord's Supper when God has told us to have the Lord's Supper. And as much as I believe the scriptures do teach that we should honor our governing authorities, when our governing authorities tell us to do something that is explicitly against scripture, we should not listen. Now I bet there's some of you who hear that and you're a little bit nervous about that. And what I would ask you to consider is who's your God? And when he says stuff, do you believe him? Do you worry about what other people can do to you? Or what he can do to you? Do you worry about how, how he can affect your life or how others can affect your life? Now, of course, this is going to work out in a thousand different ways with specifics, but I want us to wrestle with this principle. We must obey God rather than men. We are in a kingdom that is not of this world. And while we still live in this kingdom, we must obey God. So you be the judge. 
Now, I realize that's heavy stuff, and it's kind of in your face, and I guess it would be in your face for the Sanhedrin as well, right? You did the wrong thing. That's your salvation, which is why I can stand up before you and repent of this and say, you know what? I, I don't think I did the right thing, but I know there's salvation found in only one name, and that's the name of Jesus, to whom I repent and to whom I trust for my salvation. And you can do the same thing. As you look back on the last two years or the last 22 years, you can know that all the things that you have done contrary to God's word are forgiven in Jesus. And now your call is to see him as sovereign and to enjoy the comforts that come from a sovereign God. Now that's hard, right? And I bet the early church thought it was hard too. At least the way the text reads, it seems to me that they were struggling with this. Like they, they have this great prayer at the end of the text where they they're thanking God for all the sovereign things that he's done. He sovereignly created the world. He, he sovereignly planned that even though the nations would band together in rage against the Lord and against his anointed, and, and Herod and Pilate came together to conspire to kill Jesus, God worked it all out for the good of the salvation of all people. And so what do they do at the end of that? They, they lay it all out, and then they say, now, Lord, enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. In other words, Lord, we know intellectually that you are sovereign, but we're struggling with it. So empower us to be bold. Empower us to hear your word first and only. Empower us to speak that word boldly. Empower us to not care about what the world thinks of us, but only what you think of us because you're sovereign. And so I want that to be what we do as well, to pray about this. It can be so easy to avoid this. I mean, Satan doesn't want us to pray for this because he knows God answers prayer. But I think if we would pray for this, enable your servants to speak with boldness, enable your servants to believe your sovereignty, enable your servants to live in line with what you have said as the God of the universe, God's going to answer that prayer. And so I would encourage us to pray for it. And then remember that that sovereignty still works for us even despite our sin. And as we fail in doing that, as we are timid, as we are afraid, as we are worried, God still gets his work done. And so let's pray for that boldness now. Lord Jesus, it is hard to believe your sovereignty as we look around and see all sorts of sources of power that would tell us to believe a thousand things contrary to your word. They are loud voices, they are scary voices, but your voice is the only one speaking truth. And so I pray that you would enable us to hear your word and speak it boldly, to see you as our only sovereign, to live in line with your kingdom, and to bless those around us that they may also join us in that kingdom. We ask that all in your name. Amen.